Welcome to episode three of the GAM Torts podcast. Today we're joined by John So, co-founder and managing director of Fermat Capital. John talks on a range of subjects, including the formation of the insurance-linked securities market, the appeal of its non-directional characteristics, and his particular fascination with maths and problem solving. Don't forget to listen to our important legal information at the end of this podcast. I'm, I'm joined by John So. Welcome, John. It's a pleasure to be here, Neil. How did you originally become interested in, in uh, insurance-linked securities and, and catastrophe bonds as an asset class? I, I got a phone call one day, really. So I was uh, at the time at the Harvard University Endowment as managing their mortgage-backed securities portfolio. And uh, someone from Lehman Brothers called me up. Now, we had kind of a almost a, a, a running joke with each other, Lehman Brothers and I. I'd never worked there before, but they they had in the past discussed my coming into the firm. And um, I refused to go. And at one point, I said, um, listen, you know, uh, please don't call me uh, if you've got anything if, uh, that exists. And in the context of that, that conversation, I meant that I was not interested in any existing traditional finance activity that was going on. And so they called me up and said, hey, you know, I've got something that doesn't exist. And, um, <laughs> so what's that? <laughs> and said, so, well, they're going to call them catastrophe bonds. Um, and I was like, okay, that's, that's definitely something new. And, but in particular, they were calling me because they were, they were rather breathless about a, a trade that Warren Buffett had done uh, with the California Earthquake Authority in California. The, I, I, I didn't know any of this. And uh, you have to keep in mind that in, in the 1990s, there was so much actually general chaos going on in the markets in general that nobody noticed that the insurance markets in both Florida and California were collapsing due to uh, earthquake risk, and they described how uh, Warren Buffett did this epic trade uh, that was immensely profitable uh, for him in California. He had actually boasted about it in his annual report to investors. So that's how that's how I learned that it even existed or that uh, the market was about to exist, let's say. Mm-hmm. And uh, they eventually you know, invited me to come and um, be the, the head trader of a proprietary trading group that uh, Lehman was forming in response to this opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and in terms of the, the appeal of, of ILS as a, as a diversifier, I mean, the, the fact that they, they are very non-correlated to mainstream investments, is that, is that something that in, in particular jumped out at you? So what I loved about the asset class straight off the bat is uh, because it is mainly driven by, not solely, but mainly driven by uh, risks uh, from earthquakes and hurricanes is that obviously a market crash is not going to cause an earthquake or current hurricane to occur. Yeah. Uh, that um, wasn't already going to occur itself, uh, unto itself. So that, that fundamental isolation was uh, immediately appealing to me, even back in 1997. Yeah, yeah. And I've I've seen your your brother quoted uh, John saying that that much of what you do or what much of what you've done throughout your career is 
is about pricing tail risk. Is is that accurate? And and how much of what you do is 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 about understanding how probabilities work? You know, it really is that in a sense that the tail risk pricing problem, uh, interesting enough, was was uh, given to me by my father, the mathematical economist, when I was. Well, we know that I was no later. Uh, I was no older than twelve years old. I remember how I was really struck by it. Uh, how my father explained in a very interesting and fundamental way that one way of understanding uh, a, a fundamental unsolved problem in mathematical economics was, in a sense, the, the tail pricing problem. How do you price very remote but highly catastrophic risks? So, really, just from a very young age, uh, my my brother observed. I'd always been thinking about that problem. And I, when I got that call from Lehman, I did say to them, I said, from an intellectual point of view, this is very interesting because if a market were to develop for these catastrophe risks, it should eventually lead to an understanding to the solution of how to price tail risk. Um, and obviously very closely linked to, to the whole area of, of ILS and is is the concept of of reinsurance. Can you can you kind of articulate exactly what reinsurance involves, John? All right. So, well, insurance we all understand, but interestingly, and I didn't know this before 1997, but um, that insurance companies themselves buy insurance, you know, from other companies, and those other companies are called reinsurance companies, and um, so really. What was recognized, and, and by the way, the, the first modern uh, reinsurance company is Cologne Re. It was founded, I believe, in 1842, and it was in direct response to the Great Fire of Hamburg. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so it, it's a relatively modern invention, uh, reinsurance, in, in, the, in the modern sense. And really what was realized back in the 1800s, and although they kind of knew it all along, even in the 1700s, is that insurance companies themselves a great modern innovation, pooling risk, diversifying the risk, creating mutual aid. Um, it's a, it was a, also a wonderful invention that those uh, those early insurance companies, which were based on ser- selling fire policies, were exposed to catastrophic citywide fires. Right? So they, they have diversification for everyday fires, but a catastrophic fire that took out a great city uh, could bankrupt an insurance company that had otherwise operated quite smoothly for over 150 years. So they realized that they needed to create a a, a larger, let's even call it a metal level of insurance, where in a sense each risk was was treated as a single city, and that you, uh, if you had a global scheme diversifying across cities, you could regain uh, diversification, and um, that's the scheme that survived all the way until the 1990s, mm-hmm. when it was disco- uh, discovered that we needed something even bigger yeah. than what traditional reinsurance had offered. Yeah, yeah. Um, y- you've also written recently, I know, on the on the uh, the ESG attributes of insurance-linked securities. Why do you think the they're so positively aligned, ILS and, and ESG? Really, it, it aligns quite beautifully uh, with ESG principles, and this is just being formally acknowledged now uh, by institutions all around the world. 
I mean, on the environmental side, uh, we like to point out that insurance linked securities are actually at the forefront of uh, monitoring uh, the cost of extreme weather. And to our knowledge, it's the it's the only market that uh, provides a direct uh, climate price signal. In fact, uh, as we uh, point out, we don't even think of it as an argument that uh, ILS themselves are essentially climate linkers, making an analogy to inflation linkers. Mm-hmm. So uh, on the environmental side, the E of ESG, we think that the, the arguments are very clear and, and there's nobody out there that's really debating that. Yeah. Uh, from a social point of view, well, you know, here again, and this has been argued by others, that insurance in general um, is really uh, a very social form of finance. You're, you're essentially mutualizing uh, risk across a broader pool to reduce its impact and severities in society. But the, the benefits of, uh, of ILS actually are already being felt. Uh, people just don't realize it. Uh, with uh, the hurricane losses that we had in 2004 and 2005 if, uh, here in the U.S., if it were not for uh, ILS, uh, you would have seen a, uh, a significant uh, global increase in the cost of insurance. As I, I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, reinsurance is a global scheme. And uh, as such, if it comes under stress, Stress from any part of the market actually affects the pricing of insurance for everybody across the planet, whether they expect, uh, experience the insurance losses directly themselves. So there's, there's a clear societal benefit from ILS. And then finally, the last one, the, the G uh, of ESG, governance. Really, what uh, the ILS market is doing is it's bringing an unprecedented level of transparency and certainty around payouts for catastrophes. And um, what that's uh, doing is it's allowing uh, society and, and largely through governmental actions to actually plan in advance what responses will be to catastrophes, budget for those uh, responses, and, and then know that they're going to have a certain payout from uh, an ILS instrument to, to fund those actions uh, when an event occurs. So at, at a very extreme, it's been estimated by the World Bank that in some cases, having funding uh, for uh, in response to a catastrophe uh, from ILS ha- has a, a, a multiplier effect of at least a hundredfold, meaning that having a, a, a dollar of, of response to a catastrophe for certain soon after the catastrophe is worth at least a hundred dollars of aid. Mm-hmm. That comes through the, the traditional response system, which is the disaster happens, um, the uh, chaos uh, then gets out of control, there's great human suffering, and then there's international aid. Right? Yeah. So basically, the money's coming too late. It's not really coming in an organized manner. Yeah, yeah which makes Sorry, for a fairly so. compelling argument. The ILS pipeline, it, it's been kind of variable year on year. Some years there's been more issuance, some years less. What, why has it varied so much and what, what do you expect for, for 2020? Yeah, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to oversimplify it to, to the extent that a, a great part of the cyclicality is, is driven by experienced catastrophes themselves. Mm-hmm. 
you know, we, we have these forward-looking systems, and we understand how risk is building up in the system. We understand how it's exposed to extreme weather. But, you know, frankly, for society, it's, it's, it's a bit too abstract. So really, in terms of demand for catastrophe insurance, that's still largely driven by um, experienced catastrophes. So as we experience these catastrophes, uh, the public and corporations wake up to the fact that they're inadequately insured and go out and buy more insurance, which drives you know, significant growth in our market, significant issuance. So really, you know, we've come through two very severe years of losses, 2017 and 2018, namely, not only here in the U.S., but even uh, uh, in Japan and in other developing economies like uh, Mexico and Peru have had significant earthquakes. So the result of that is we expect a record amount of issuance in this market and record growth in 2020. Mm-hmm. And is that linked in some way to climate change? I think most of us accept now, John, that climate change is real, but does, does the evidence suggest to you that that is the case, and can you can you quantify it in any way? Yeah, of course, climate change is, is, is real. I don't I don't I don't understand uh, the concept of denying that because we can measure that the sea ter- surface temperature is getting measurably warmer. Yeah. Uh, but then again, you know, what are, are are the specific impacts on that on specific regions and specific perils? Perils being the or hazards. Yeah. Uh, uh, things like floods, uh, of course, hurricanes and wildfire. So again, as you know, we are this market is on the forefront on, on monitoring impacts for that. And so, as an example, you uh, every uh, offering circular and prospectus uh, for hurricane bonds uh, has in it a uh, risk estimate uh, that uh, is taking all the most adverse assumptions from a, a warming world and shows how the probabilities would be changed from that. So, yeah, we, we're very much in, in tune with it. And we'll say that, you know, climate change itself is really all about trying to move this very large ship that we're on this, uh, 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 speaking about the global modern econo- uh, economy. Yeah. And it's trying to move that ship uh, down a certain path, so vert, uh, vert, let's say, an iceberg that's uh, sitting uh, down the line 50, 100 years from now. Mm-hmm. But in the here and now, uh, there, it, we're not seeing the uh, impacts yet. We, we are monitoring for it. But what is very helpful is that awareness uh, is, is extremely high and getting higher in society. And um, that's actually creating uh, a, a kind of a risk awareness and a risk culture. Um, that is driving growth in our market. Uh, tell me about the importance of the of the work of a lady called Karen Clark. I know she's been very influential in the in the, the formation of the ILS market. So Karen Clark, it's just uh, to me is really an amazing story, uh, and I, I think I could say with some confidence that without her, this uh, insurance linked securities market likely w- wouldn't exist. So um, really, it was it was through an insight that she had in the, in the late 1980s that um, she realized that we actually could, you know, say predict what insured losses would be from catastrophic hurricanes that had never happened or had not happened for 
you know, uh, many decades. Yeah. And, um, you know, previous to her, in, her insight, uh, people had thought that impossible, which, of course, helped people simply not think about capacity risk itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll actually, uh, I'll actually tell you the secret right now. Okay. okay. Um, the, the, the secret, roughly, this is not doing her work any justice, but it's, 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 a, very, it's a simple rule of thumb. When a hurricane makes landfall, what you do is you look at all the um, square footage of, uh, of buildings that fall within the footprint of that hurricane. Uh, you multiply that square footage of, of building space times the cost to rebuild it. Yep. All this information is public information. Mm-hmm. And multiply times 10%. Uh, and so you'll, you, you come up with a dollar number. And um, that's, that's a pretty g- uh, good uh, estimate or guess of what insured losses will be. Mm-hmm. We actually, she used it uh, after Hurricane Andrew or in the morning of Hurricane Andrew yeah. in 1992. She she made a bet uh, on. She bet her entire company because if she was wrong, she was uh, not going to sell any software. Yeah. She faxed to the Lloyd's market that uh, the loss from Hurricane Andrew would be 13 billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, that loss estimate was over 20 times greater. Mm-hmm. than what the market was estimating. Yeah. But in essence, she was she was using uh, what I call the, uh, the 10% rule. Yeah. And of course, she, she was dead on. I mean, ultimately, the number turned out to be $14 billion. Yeah. But yeah. because she was right, and they realized that the, the simplicity and the power of her methodology, it literally opened the eyes of the market that they were sitting on 20 times more catastrophe risk than they had thought. Yeah. Um, but it, but it also removes the fear of dealing with catastrophe. You know, like if, if she had not been around, the the loss would have materialized twenty times larger than expected, yeah. and we would have continued our fearful, you know, uh, relationship with catastrophe risk that it was unmanageable, you mm-hmm. can't predict it, et cetera. Now, John, you mentioned already that you you grew up in a in a uh, a maths. Uh, a, a household which was which was full of maths and and your both your parents were, were mathematicians. I believe you've got a PhD in biophysics. Is that right? Yes, that's is, right. Is that is that a a good background? A good good was that a good grounding for what you do now? You know, I I I, I think it is, and 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 the the main reason why I say is that um, I took a it's, it's an interdisciplinary. Uh, study biophysics. What they do is they take uh, classically trained physicists and then they retool them in, in biology and molecular biology and see what they can do. I, I will also say this, that bi- biophysics, as it was taught to me, it has a very interesting history. So uh, it really, uh, in the modern era, began in the, in the early 20th century when uh, physicists were feeling very good about themselves, uh, solving a lot of problems. So they figured, well, you know, why don't we just study biology and and, and solve life itself? <laughs> uh, all those early pioneers just got destroyed and mm-hmm. humiliated. They yeah. they came up with nothing because they had an overly simplistic view about biology. And I and I think there are some analogies for hard science and math um, uh, people coming over into the markets. You know, the markets are a lot like biology. Yep. You know, they're kind of wet, they're wild, they're not uniform, they're, they're largely unpredictable in certain uh, ways. So, you know, I, I was taught to approach biophysics with some humility, and I try to uh, keep that in mind when I approach markets. Now, you, you obviously have a, um, 
something of an intellectual hero in Fermat, uh, given that you named your company after him. But do, do you have a, a particular investment hero? Sure. Ed Thorpe. Okay. So uh, Ed Thorpe is, um, is known to, uh, for really writing two books. One is called Beat the Dealer, uh, and the other is called uh, Beat the Market, I believe. He wrote those in the, the early, mid-1960s. Mm-hmm. And uh, both books were quite revolutionary. So he, he, was a, he was a math guy, and at that time he was doing a stint at, uh, at uh, MIT. And uh, he really started uh, to understand that uh, that modern probability theory wasn't actually being applied uh, to, uh, uh, to markets. And so I think he, he first kind of pioneered techniques uh, in the casino, and then uh, unleash those techniques uh, on the market. I, I find him absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, actually, you know, I, I want to throw in another one, and it's uh, Bill Sharp. Okay. So he created uh, the modern portfolio theory and uh, he the, has the ratio. Um, yeah, the, the cap on yeah. market. It, really, for me, these are two bookends. They're, they're obviously they were very mathy people. Uh, that went into the market. Thorpe was really uh, at a very deep level, if you think about it. He was actually about alpha, about identifying alpha, isolating it. And uh, Sharp was actually about beta, you know, mm. system, systemic risk. And to me, if you really can marry those two people together, you have the perfect combination because you want both uh, when you're investing. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, are you a uh, you or your colleagues users of social media, John? And and how, how do you find that if you do, does that does that link to investment? Is it a useful tool? Oh yeah, we do, we do actually. So uh, a lot of what we do is we're we're very interested in understanding what ground truth is in the midst of a catastrophe. The, the obvious reason being that catastrophe bonds are are tradable instruments and do continue to trade. Yeah. Uh, even through events that threaten uh, their principle. And um, we're finding that social media, uh, in particular uh, Twitter, mm-hmm. are actually uh, significant sources of information for ground truth. Um, interestingly, they're, they're significant sources of disinformation as well. <laughs> yes, right? yeah. So, so you've, got, uh, it, you've, got, you've so, got to somehow make that distinction. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's it's interesting, and we see this, of course, being discussed now in the in the media. You know, there there are some tremendously negative aspects to it because a single individual doesn't have to be a state actor could actually uh, incorrectly alarm a million people mm-hmm. uh, with a with a particular post. But if you look at the aggregate of uh, posters, and of course, if you carefully filter and so on and so forth. Yeah. You can actually learn things that uh, could take you weeks to learn through more traditional channels. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we we absolutely do use social media in our investment process. A slightly left-field question for you, John, but if you could give one piece of advice to the young John So embarking on his career, what would what would that piece of advice be? I was younger. I was uh, I was constantly wondering what I was going to do, what was going to be my, you know, my role in the world and so forth and uh, I suppose the one thing I would say is, is uh, yeah, keep keep wondering that, but uh, but in the end, don't worry about it because it's all going to work out. 
given that you're you're obviously US based, but you from time to time come visit us in the UK. What's what's your favorite favorite thing to do when you come to the UK? Okay, my favorite thing to do, do when I come to the UK is to go to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. So can you guess what I'm going there for? Do tell. <laughs> it's it's to see. It, this is this amazes me that more people don't do this. It's to see the Harrison clock. Okay. So your John Harrison in the, in the UK um, invented the so-called marine chronometer. So it's a, which is a tremendous feat. So, you know, it's back in the times where we had grandfather clocks that could be quite accurate. But if you, as you know, if you stick a grandfather clock on a, on a ship at sea in the, and this is the late 1600s, uh, 1700s, you know, how in the world is that grandfather clock going to keep accurate time uh, through all the storms, through all the motions, through all the changes in heat and humidity? Uh, time, uh, the, the time accuracy required to have a practical marine chronometer uh, needed to be uh, on the order of a few seconds uh, over the course of several weeks at sea. And it's, just, it's just a tremendous problem uh, with, uh, with tremendous importance to world navigation and eventually the globalization of our world. And uh, that was solved by John Harrison. And uh, what's just astounding to me is that his first four prototypes, which are labeled H1 through H4, Harrison 1, 2, and 3, and 4, are all there at the observatory in Greenwich. And even more remarkably, H1 through 3 are actually running. They actually, <laughs> they actually run the chronometers there yeah. behind very thin glass cases. You can come up within a few inches of it and uh, observe these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, I, th- I think it's just one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen in the world, seeing these pieces of history still running uh, there at the observatory in Greenwich. Um, John, that seems like a really good place to finish. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much, Neil. That was a lot of fun. For more of our insights, please visit our website, gam.com. Important legal information. The information in this podcast is given for information purposes only and does not qualify as investment advice. Opinions and assessments contained in this podcast may change and reflect the point of view of GAM in the current economic environment. No liability shall be accepted for the accuracy and completeness of the information. The mentioned financial instruments are provided for illustrative purposes only and shall not be considered as direct offering, investment recommendation or investment advice. Past performance is no indicator of current or future trends.